Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. Hey folks, uh, in this episode we are traveling virtually to one of my favorite places in the country, uh, the Pacific Northwest, uh, Seattle, Washington, and we are going to talk to Gregory Flynn, and Greg is a coach and a facilitator. Uh, you can find information about him at gregorybflynn.com. Uh, he has run a men's group in the Seattle area since the beginning of the COVID pandemic in 2020. That group continues to this day. Uh, we talk about how that group began and some of the issues that it had to fight through in order to survive and how it evolves. Um, and we also talk about plenty of stuff that uh, others have talked about in different ways over the course of this podcast when it comes to men's work and evolution and just being better people for everybody. And that's pretty much the scope of this uh, particular episode. I hope you enjoy it. It's a really good one. So without further ado, here is Gregory Flynn. I'm Greg Flynn, and I am a facilitator and at times a coach. I'm starting to kind of veer away from coaching a little bit, and I live in Seattle, Washington, and I I do, do a number of things. The place I'm putting a lot of energy and a lot of focus right now is my work with men. So being, holding, facilitating men's circles, running and leading programs and workshops and trainings for men. Got a lot of stuff in the pipeline. Some of that we're not quite ready to, or I'm not quite ready to talk about. And I say we, cause I've got a, a partner in some of this work and right. been facilitating a, an amazing group that has been running since the beginning of the pandemic. And then I also do some stuff with organizations. I, I do team coaching and facilitation in organizations, helping organizations have conversations that they need to have, helping teams have conversations that they need to have, that sort of thing. Amazing. And that leads me immediately to two questions. First question is not necessarily how did you get started, but what was the deciding factor or what were the deciding factors in this mm. becoming something that you were passionate about and wanted the to pursue professionally? The men's, men's work, work specifically. Specifically, yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, it's been my own journey. I, I kind of fell backwards a little bit in the men's work. Actually, I fell backwards in the most things that I end up involved in, quite <laughs> frankly. And I, I think it was 2008, a friend of mine suggested that I check out a men's weekend and I went and I checked it out and I'd never done anything like that before in my entire life. I've always been really hesitant to 
do anything with men just because I think I wasn't a typical guy's guy. I was a sensitive theater kid growing up. And so wasn't into sports, wasn't into the whole scene that most guys were into. And so I never quite figured out how I fit in. And so going and being in this kind of mountainous retreat center in the foothills of Southern California with like 40 or 50 other men for a weekend was, was new to me, but it opened up something. And I came out of that and I started joining men's circles again and again and again. And each time I would go into a, a different place, I would find something else would unlock. And that journey led me to wanting to start men's circles. I started finding myself feeling like I had a sense of what I wanted that was a little different than what I was finding. And I started finding some men's circles. When the pandemic started and everything, we were all going into that lockdown phase, right? Isolation. I think we talked a lot about isolation, social distancing and keeping yep. ourselves apart from one another. I started thinking about this in terms of what's this going to do for men? We're so typically, and I'm using the we here very intentionally, right? Because I include myself in this. You're right. So typically, it's so easy for us to isolate ourselves already to have this additional thing. And then the difficulty in reaching for help, the difficulty in saying to somebody, I'm struggling. I was like, this is going to be really hard. So I started a group and man, I, I was blown away by the response and guys started coming. And, and as that was growing, I was like, oh, I actually feel like there's something here to really focus on. And so I started pivoting a lot of my energy into that work. Great. And the second part of that question, I guess, is my own perception of men's groups and men's circles, mm. uh, which is evolving yeah, that... as I'm starting to be part of more men's groups myself and actually starting some. There were people that I had on in the early days of the podcast that maybe kind of helped firm this image in my head of men's groups being sort of like warrior spirit dudes standing around a fire, beating their chests and stuff like that. Which, <laughs> having never experienced that, I, I don't know how accurate that is. Something tells me that that is not what you're about. No, no. <laughs> I've experienced it. I've right. been there. I've been swept up in it, for sure. I think it's very alluring. Here's my take, is one of the things, and, and I was very intentional in not naming the organization whose weekend I went to, right? Because they've done some good. They've done good in the world. They certainly have. And it could be any number of them, right? There's a whole bunch of organizations out there. But what I've noticed is that a lot of times what we're talking about when we go into those circles is we recognize that men are in a box. And I talk a lot about this in my work, right? Was that we're conditioned into tiny boxes. And so there's this idea like, oh, okay, men are in a box. And a lot of those groups, what, they, what we want to do is we want to kind of expand that box a little bit create a little bit more room in that in that box for our energy, our kind of man, warrior. And there's a place for that, I think. To gender that, I think, is part of the problem, right? To actually say, oh, well, men are warriors, but women, they're not warriors. Well, hmm, I don't know. I, I would beg to differ. Yeah, my wife, one of her cousins actually used the quote, and my wife was actually using it this weekend because we were looking at some genealogy stuff on her side of the family was she comes from a line of formidable women, right? And they are formidable and they are warriors. And so there's a way in which that whole thing, I think, reinforces 
notions of masculinity that I don't think are actually super helpful. They're not, I don't think they're super healthy either. I think what we need is not to just expand the man box, but destroy it and to actually step beyond what we think of as masculinity. And that's kind of at the core of the work that I do. That's amazing. Did you grow up in Washington? No, I'm from California, from okay. San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. So growing up in the Bay Area, and again, this is me and my perceptions. I have the perception of the Bay Area as a very permissive, not necessarily quote unquote, toxically masculine place. And mm. you say you were a theater kid, all of that stuff. When you were growing up or when you were a young adult, did you feel like you had good male role models? And did you feel <laughs> like you had a sense of support from the other boys and men in your life? No. Nope. <laughs> Flat no. <laughs> yeah. So I was a sensitive theater kid for sure. And that that started young. I mean, the stories of me when I was a kid are always about the, what's the word? Dance to a different drummer. No, march to a different drummer. March, march to, march a, to different a different drummer. That was always what my mom always said about me. My dad did the best he could, and he wasn't an emotionally available guy. He was a shutdown guy, and I think I have ideas why that is, and that was just the reality that I grew up in from a male role model standpoint. When I was really young, I was actually like in late elementary school, early junior high school when I discovered thrash metal, which was something going on in the Bay Area, right? I had classmates who had older siblings who like... Kind of, and this uh, this stuff leaked into Metallica and Slayer and Anthrax. All those bands leaked into my life and became kind of like ooh, and that became the ideal for me. So I'm a like, sensitive theater kid who can't quite get along with the jocks and even with the other guys, but also just super attracted to this really toxic. I mean, don't get me wrong, I still love me some Metallica and Anthrax, but it was not exactly a healthy scene, and right. I think it was a, another place that toxic masculinity came through. And and so, yes, growing up in the Bay Area, I didn't grow up in Berkeley with hippie parents, like a lot of folks did. I grew up in the suburbs and with pretty conventional, traditional family, but without a whole lot of emotional intelligence around me and very, very little in the way of healthy male role models. Did you always have an idea that it was something that you craved? was a level of emotional intelligence that you weren't receiving? I don't think that was conscious. Honestly, it didn't really occur to me until I was in my 30s. I was kind of a mess. Like I came out of high school. I think when I look back on it, I was trying to find that male role model. I was trying to find that father energy. And I found it in a couple of places that veered me a little off course, one of which actually took me out of theater and took me towards music, which was fine in the sense of, it's not like I went from theater to going to work for a, an oil company or something, but <laughs> it wasn't my path. But the reason I went that path was because there was a music teacher that gave me some attention in a fatherly way that I had longed for my whole life. But I don't think it was until I was in my 30s and I started getting into therapy because if I didn't get into therapy, well, I wasn't going to be good. I wasn't going to be okay. And it was really kind of like a rock bottom kind of experience. Yeah. And getting into therapy, I started noticing, oh yeah, I actually, I feel things <laughs> and I feel things deeply and a lot. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
No, that's who I am. You know, it's actually a gift of mine. I think it's part of what allows me to do this work is that I feel so deeply. I would agree that people who are drawn to that work tend to be more empathetic, sensitive types. Yeah. Yeah. Beat, I beat the drum for therapy so often. I feel like people who listen to this podcast are like, here goes Mike again. <laughs> it's the broken record. He's telling people to go to therapy. We yeah. saw it on Instagram. We heard it on the podcast. Shut up, Mike. But I think in most cases, even if it's not great therapy, it's helpful to at least get your foot in the door and discover what the possibilities of mm -hmm. great therapy can be. Um, yes. I do think that seeing somebody, whether it's for a short time, a long time, everybody's different. I think making the investment and seeing a therapist is so important, particularly for guys, because there's so much stigma you have to battle and to break those chains, to erase some of that stigma, you have to actually do the work and you can't mm -hmm. do the work yourself. Your friends aren't always going to be available to do the work. Your spouse ain't yeah. going to be available all the time to do the work. A professional is definitely the way to go, at least at the outset. Yeah, it's really, it's something that should be a utility in our society, right? It should be something that everybody has access to. We all kind of pay into a pot and you just all get access to it. It's such a critical thing to begin to, to help get some reflection that helps you understand what's happening in oneself. And this is one of those things where there's like that and around the one-on-one -on -one therapy. One of the things I've learned, one of the limitations of it is it can reinforce if, if not held right, the it's all me, I've got to deal with it myself, even though I've got a therapist or a coach or whatever. This is one of the reasons I'm stepping away from coaching some, at least one-on-one -on -one coaching is because we can sometimes get into this idea of we work with the coach, we come up with a plan for the behavior change I want to make or the thing I want to deepen in my life. And then I get off the call and now it's just me against the world. Mm. And that continues to play into some of the conditioning we have as men. Men were conditioned to like, go figure it out, be on your own. Don't ask for help. That's a weakness. And so in the early 2000s, I started doing group therapy. And he was telling me how there's research that shows that individual therapy combined with group therapy is the most sticky, right? And actually has the most transformative benefits. And it's part of what I tell guys in my groups is th this shouldn't be your only place, like, but it should be like to have the group as an adjunct to your other development work is, is huge because it gives you a place to practice. It gives you a place to come in and take what you've learned in therapy and apply it with a group of men that hopefully over time you've really gotten to know well and you trust, right? So you can mess around and do things that you're like, I don't know, this is going to work. I feel really silly doing this. Everybody's like, we got you, buddy. We got you. doesn't matter how it goes. No one's going to judge you. No one's going to laugh. No one's going to take you down a notch. All the things I think we get afraid of around groups of men. Right. So moving towards your specific circle, your specific group, mm -hmm. you formed this group at a very volatile time when I, <laughs> look, I can only speak for myself. I was like, what the fuck is going on? Uh, and I would imagine most sensible people had similar sentiments. Mm -hmm. uh, what were those early days like? Oh man. 
it was a lot of what the fuck is going on. <laughs> what I was interested in with the group was exploring the questions of what does that mean in the context of your masculinity? Like, how is this changing that? Are you a guy who's been a go it alone guy? Or do you feel like you need to start reaching out more? What does it mean to reach out? And it was a lot of exploration of how do we navigate, you know, and that I think it was interesting because so like March to April of 2020, if you could pull yourself back to that time, even though if we don't want to. You know, do we like, want to? Do we yeah. want to? But there was this time of like, okay, this will be over soon, right? That first month felt like, okay, we'll be out of this summer and we'll be on our way. Oh, yeah. I think it was May and June was when it started getting really kind of like, you guys, I'm not doing very well. I'm struggling. I'm lonely and I don't know what to do with myself. I have all this energy in this idea of I need to be productive, right? I think this played out in our culture with we're all going to make sourdough starters now, <laughs> which I also get we need to have things to take our minds off of it. And doing things like that is important. But I also think that, and I think this is especially true for men, but it, it plays out in our culture too, is we keep ourselves busy to avoid feeling the things that are moving through us. Because even though, like I say, I'm a feeler and I feel deeply, we're all feelers. There's different degrees of sensitivity and our defense systems, our emotional defense systems are all wired differently, but we all have these nervous systems. And so we're all feeling this stuff all the time. And when we were up against that in the beginning of the pandemic, or even, I mean, honestly, even now a bit <laughs> related to the pandemic, what does it feel like when you walk in a room and there's 200 people there and no one's wearing a mask? Is there any part of you that's like, I know there isn't me. And so to actually slow ourselves down and be like, oh yeah, I feel that. It doesn't feel good. But to have a place to say that, that was, that was the key. And I, I'm so happy that you created a safe space and it's still mm. going three years later. Yeah. I, I, and it's so important to me the idea of safe spaces. And we talk about that a lot in reference to people of color. We talk about that a lot in reference mm -hmm. to women. And we talk about that mm -hmm. a lot in reference to queer people. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is that men need safe spaces too. And yeah. it's really hard. I'm not a men's rights activist. I'm not one of those guys. <laughs> but it really is hard to advocate for guys. And to even add on top of that, to advocate for guys wanting to be better for themselves or each other in addition yeah. to wanting to be better for the non-men in the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're mentioning men's rights activists. I think that they have kind of hijacked the conversation in a way that makes it hard for us to have this conversation. There isn't a lot of spaces to say it's hard for men. Like that's an edgy thing to say. I can feel it in my body. I know every time I come out and I say this, I'm waiting to get canceled, right? I'm waiting to get blasted and I'm sure I will and whatever. I'm fine with the criticism and I understand the criticism. I do because I can only imagine what it feels like to be in a non-male body and to hear a man say, what about us, right? And when the whole world is built for men. The whole right. world is designed for us and we benefit from that. We benefit from it on a daily basis. I don't have to worry of walking from an office building to my car in the middle of the night. 
that's not a thing. I don't need to call security for that. I'm six foot four. I'm generally pretty safe in that regard. Although I'm also somebody who would probably be very easily taken out by somebody <laughs> much smaller <laughs> than me because I'm not exactly a fighter, right? So I get, I get that. But I keep quoting this and I need to go and I think I shared this with you at one point in another conversation. I need to find the source for this, but there is a study or a survey that was done where they surveyed men and women. And this is a very binary thing, right? So I'm using binary language here, sure, but for simplicity's sake, and they surveyed men and women in the 60s or 70s, and they asked them to describe themselves. And we got a bunch of adjectives, right? And you can imagine what the adjectives that men and women used in the 60s and 70s were. Then they continued to do this survey over the preceding decades. And sometime in the last decade or 15 years or so, they did the survey again. And when you compare the original to the latest, what you see is the adjectives women have used have grown exponentially over time. And in, to include the adjectives men were using in the 60s or 70s. Mm -hmm. But the men's adjectives haven't changed, right? And I think the reason for that is women have been doing the work. And men, when we do our work in a lot of ways, this is one of my criticisms of typical men's work, is what we keep doing is we just keep reinforcing, right? We go in and we work on our shadow maybe, but do we work on masculinity? Do we work on what it means? Do we work on the fact that, yeah, sure, maybe it's masculine to take up your shirt and scream and beat your chest, but it's also masculine to make a flower arrangement and go dancing and play the lute. Those are masculine things too. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I I wonder trying to figure out how to word this properly. There is so much about the way I view masculinity versus the way that other people view masculinity that could be viewed as urban slash rural or liberal versus conservative, New Yorker mm -hmm. versus Midwesterner or mm -hmm. Southerner. I probably have more model behavior for positive masculinity in my circle, mm. but I had to seek that out. I certainly didn't grow up with it. I grew up, I grew up in the hood with really toxically masculine people. Mm. And it feels like there are all of these divides that I feel like at least on paper would make people think, oh, well, Mike is set up to be this progressive, whatever. And then there's the fact that I'm queer on top of it. But I don't think people understand how these hard and fast rules about masculinity touch everybody and affect everybody and impact everybody, regardless of where you live, who you fuck, how old you are, whatever it is. How do we bridge these divides? Mm. I think this is the million dollar question, man. <laughs> we have to slow down. First of all, we have to start there because we are always reacting. We're not responding to one another. Our nervous systems are heightened. There's a podcast I listened to, on, I think it was an On Being episode, where they were interviewing a woman who was talking about high conflict, right? And so it's this idea that emerged out of divorce, like, what do you call them? Uh, mediating of divorces, right? Ah, and, okay. and what they would find is that the couples would be in what they called high conflict, which is essentially a state of arousal in which you are just looking for conflict. Right. And so as soon as you see something, you just jump on it. And then this has been extrapolated and applied to our culture. Right. 
we're in a state of high conflict. It's what social media has become, right? It's why you can't have a useful conversation on Twitter or at Facebook or anywhere. I mean, besides the algorithms, the algorithms don't help. They just feed all that. Right. They heighten the conflict. But yeah. we are all kind of in a state of it. And so when we think about things like male fragility or white fragility, these are things that are at the nervous system. Men aren't inherently fragile and white people aren't inherently fragile. It's our nervous systems aren't suited to be in these conversations. We get triggered and we get activated and we then we react with one another. So how do we slow that cycle down? We actually have to do some work on our nervous systems. And this is where we do the individual work. But we can't do nervous system work alone. That's the thing is our nervous systems actually co-regulate with one another. So how do we do that? We have to slow down. And I think that in some ways, there's an element of not everybody is ready to be in these conversations. Not everybody's ready to be in this work. But I also think we have to create spaces for men. Like you were saying earlier, we have to be able to say it's okay for men to do this. Yeah, some people are going to yell and scream about it and say, oh, men are just trying to once again make it about themselves. But the reality is we are very often the perpetrators. We are very often the instigators, but we're also victims and we are also oppressed by oppressive systems. And part of that, when I think of the boxes that we're in, is that our lives are made unbearably small by the norms and the rules around masculinity. There's so much that we could we can experience as men that we're not allowing ourselves to because we keep ourselves in these boxes. The man code keeps us from actually experiencing what's possible. I, I'm just nodding in agreement because <laughs> uh, so much of what you're saying resonates with me. You bring up white fragility mm -hmm. and reading your website and knowing a little bit about you, you do work largely with white bodied men. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll circle back and talk publicly about a private conversation you and I had where mm -hmm. I expressed a little bit of frustration because I had reached out to a few people about being on the podcast. And honestly, the only rejections I've ever gotten, like I've gotten rejections by ignoring, which is one mm -hmm. thing, but the only people that have reached out to me to say, Mike, I don't want to do your podcast. The excuse that they've given is there are enough cis white het guys out there on podcasts. I don't need to add to the conversation. Mm -hmm. And where my frustration comes in is I'm like, me, Mike, as a queer black person, I'm not going to hold the same weight in conversation saying the things that I'm saying Mm -hmm. to a cishet white guy who really needs to hear a lot of this shit mm -hmm. as another cishet white guy is saying the yeah. things that I'm saying. Yeah. And not to say that I just want cishet white guys to be on the podcast. That's certainly not the case. But mm -hmm. those rejections that I got felt like cop-outs. Mm. And I, I wonder what you encounter in your work with, I don't know whether they're heterosexual or not. And Really, nobody knows if anybody's heterosexual or not. But with yeah. cisgender white guys in your work, like what have you encountered? There's so much fear, man. We're freaked out. And I say we're freaked out. And I can imagine the response of, oh, 
boo-hoo, right, type of a thing. And there's an element of that I think that's true because I've never had to be concerned when I get pulled over. I've never wondered if my race had anything to do with whether or not I got a job or got into a college or something like that. I understand the privilege. I do. And the reality is, is that as, as men, as white men, we've lived our entire lives in a culture that has told us we are better and here's all the privileges you get for that. It's also told us you do not talk about this. You do not talk about this. And we've reached a point, we reached it a long, long time ago, but it became really clear in the last three years that we have to talk about this. If we don't talk about this, and especially if we don't talk about it among ourselves, there's no way out. And this is that maybe controversial to say, but as white men, we are also being impacted by these systems of oppression in ways that are oppressive. Like, yeah, you don't, I don't have to worry getting pulled over by the police. I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm going to survive that traffic stop. Sure. But I do have to worry about the fact that I am now in a position where to get close to you, I have a huge chasm across. And that is something that's tragic, quite frankly. And like this system was built by white men. Right. This system, it was designed and built by white men. And it's largely continued to be reinforced by white men, although a lot of more identities participate in the reinforcement of it. I don't see a way out of this without actually including white men, not centering white men, not like making it about us, but we have to be a part of the solution. But the problem is, again, it comes back to there are no spaces to have those conversations. And that's, that's something I've sought to do. I created a program a few years ago called Men Connecting Understanding Whiteness. It's a space for white-bodied men to engage in these conversations, to ask the hard questions, to challenge themselves. I bring in my teacher from Holistic Resistance, Aaron Johnson, who's an African heritage man from Southern California. He comes into the program and it's a labor of trying to create those spaces of bridges that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. What has the response been to that? Oh, it's mixed. I mean, can you think of a a more challenging population of people to engage in these conversations than white men? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's rough. I've done five cohorts of the program. And each of those cohorts has brought its own challenges. Each of those cohorts has brought its own blind spots. They've challenged me in ways I've learned things about myself and about what it means to be in this kind of body, what it means to do this work. So we're all kind of finding our way. I think that's part of the challenge, right, is what we're talking about here is kind of at the threshold of the culture that we have all been raised in that kind of tells us what our roles are. And on the other side of that threshold is something different. And I don't think any of us knows what it is. I think when we talk about a world in which we've abolished white supremacy, I don't think really anybody knows what that looks like. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, what does that feel like in our bodies? And we're taking tiny little teeny steps. Like I'm not under the illusion that my program is ending white supremacy. I don't know that that'll happen in my lifetime. It'd be great, but I don't know if it will. But it's like, what can I do today? It's when you are an activist on any level, and actually, I'm only I'm going to speak about myself because I only know myself. Hmm. Sometimes 
you want to change the world and trying to change the world is really exhausting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think particularly for me in the last three years, I've had to reset the way that I feel about the activism work that I do, where it's like, okay, if I can get one person to think, I did a great job. Mm. If I can get more than one person to think, fantastic. But the entire world isn't going to flip. 50 people aren't going to flip. 10 people aren't necessarily going to flip because I Mm. raised my voice and said something. It's possible, but Mm. you start with one Mm -hmm. and then you move from there. And I think that realizing that has impacted my exhaustion level for the better. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I think doing the work that you're doing is really important because again, the things that I'm saying come out of my mouth are going to sound different and possibly hit different if they're coming out of your mouth. Mm. Mm -hmm. And one thing I've also said for a long time is that people who have privilege need to use their privilege to help out the folks who are exhausted. Mm -hmm. And I I say that often as a a queer person, quote unquote, straight appearing queer people Mm -hmm. need to take on a little bit of extra work because the queer presenting queer people are fucking tired. So if you are an ally, if you are someone who can get into spaces where oppressed people either can't get into or they can't get into without a lot of difficulty, I think taking on some of that responsibility is really important. Yeah, 100%. One of the goals I have is to be able to carry that burden, carry that weight. I don't have a lifetime of carrying it, so I have a lot of capacity. And I mean, that's a big piece of it too, right? I don't know where I ended up getting this capacity from, but for whatever reason, I've got capacity for it. And, and I think one of the things I'm trying to do with the men in the Understanding Whiteness program, but with men in all the stuff I'm doing, whether it's the group I've been doing for the last few years or the programs that I'm actually getting ready to launch, all of those things are rooted in when it comes to the conversation around race for white men. We need to develop the capacity to be in our shame when we are confronted with the realities of the very system that has benefited us. Shame is a reality. It's going to happen. The issue is it's so often been used as a weapon, right? It's been used as a tool. You should feel bad. It's like, well, I don't think that that really is very useful. But when I talk to you about your life and your experience, and I hear about the the things that you've endured in your positionality, just living your life from day to day, I'm going to feel shame because that's what gets triggered in a white body. I need to have the capacity to be with that. I don't know where I got that capacity, but that's the capacity that I've developed. And so that's part of what I'm trying to do with others is help them develop that capacity. It doesn't feel great, but we've got to be able to feel it in order to move through it. Another question I need to think about a little bit before I ask it, Sure. There are people that I've spoken to in the past who do similar work who I think come from a place of almost condescension or it feels like a cult leader kind of space. How important is it that even though you are a facilitator and a leader, you still have the attitude of, hey, folks, I'm in the trenches with you. I'm one of you in addition to sort of being the facilitator of this Mm. group. As opposed to like, I am your leader. (laughs) Oh, well, I don't trust that. 
I don't trust that for two seconds. I trust it in certain areas, I guess, in my life. If I was going to pick my bass back up and be like, all right, I'm going to get back into this and start playing music again. I would want a teacher who was able to rip it and not have to think twice about it for sure. But my guess is also if I really liked that teacher, if I really actually vibed with him, he would probably be somebody who spent a couple hours a day with his scales, even though he's been doing it for 40 years or whatever and can play with whatever group or she, I should say, or they. Right. Right. So I, I think that, that there are certain ways in which the, the whole Instagram thing, the whole social media thing, I think has made this really tricky. And, and not to say it started there. I think that there were always kind of the guru approaches to things. And I think of the Tony Robbins type guys out there. And he's great. I shouldn't say that, but he has his place and people find some benefit from it. And that's fantastic. But the reality is all of us is a work in progress. Everyone's a work in progress. And if, if I get a single vibe that you're not a work in progress, I don't trust you. I'm not going to take your workshop. I'm just not. And some people might, and that's great. Good for them. I'm guessing that they're looking for something else. I think there's something else going on there. It's my guess. But I, I don't see myself ever not being in this work. I will always be in some kind of, all right, not to say like I have to get better all the time. That to me is still an unhealthy masculine kind of mentality. Right. It's more like I know that life has so much more to offer. And the first half of my life was all about creating an identity around that. And now I'm unpacking that and I'm finding out what's underneath all of that. And I'm liking it. I'm enjoying it. And not to say it's all heavy. It isn't. Some of it's pretty light and fun. That, yeah. that actually leads me to, it leads me to two things. One is that people get the idea of self-improvement and therapy and personal evolution is this constantly heavy thing. And it's not, it can be, Mm -hmm. but there's lightness in humor. And Mm -hmm. I don't think you can take yourself too seriously if you're a work in progress, because you're going to be regularly looking back at shit that you fucked up. (laughs) And the other, I just lost my train of thought. The other thing is, Or another thing that I I wanted to discuss with you is you and I are probably about the same age. I wonder how aging plays into the masculine struggle. Most of the people that I speak to for this podcast are also kind of in my age range for whatever Mm. reason. I'm not really sure why that is. I just think that Mm -hmm. most of the people I know are kind of close to me in age. Sure. What have you noticed in terms of how guys are feeling about getting older? Oh, Well, I mean, I turned 50 last year and when I turned 50, everybody started telling me how my life was about to fall apart and how my body was going to fall apart. It's all downhill from here, which is just kind of one of those. Yeah. I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) You don't know me. (laughs) I don't think so. In fact, I'm actually more committed now than ever to ensuring that the next, because the first 35 years of my life, I was not healthy at all in any way. And I'm super committed to being as healthy as I can be, as long as I can be. And I, so I don't buy into those stories. And not to say that things don't happen, and but I don't buy into the inevitability of certain things like that. One of the things I've observed is that the older we get, the harder it is to, like, if we don't step into this work when we're a little bit younger and meaning like 
today you're younger than you're going to be for the rest of your life, right? Yeah. That's just true for all of us. The reality is today I'm younger than I'm going to be tomorrow. And so the younger we are getting into it, the better, I think. The, the, things get more rigid as we get older. And I've got guys coming into stuff that are in their 60s and 70s, and they're committed to doing the work. And they're doing the work for sure, 100%. And so I would never say to them, boy, you should have gotten here when you were 35. But if you're 35 and you haven't stepped into the work, I'd say step into the work, you know, because now's, now's, a good time to start. now's the time to do it. And I think it's one of the biggest tricks. And I'm looking at myself and I'm like, okay, the things that I still have to unwrap and unwind in myself, the various shadow elements, the things that I feel that I still carry shame about. Yeah, I need to be working on those things. I don't want to let them wait too much longer because they become a little bit harder to unravel. What can we do as men to help support other men? Mm. Well, start with yourself. Start with your work. Join a group. Find a group somewhere. So all of that is to build the muscles to make it so that you can reach out past your conditioning and be of support some, to somebody else, to be the guy that like instigates the call and says, how you doing, man? I've been noticing that I haven't seen you around in a while. I'm concerned. What's going on? Let's grab a drink or let's go get coffee or can we go for a walk? And even if we're just going to walk in silence, I'm here. Let's help each other out. Breaking this shell, and now I'm speaking completely from personal experience, mm. I've been on both sides of this equation as well. For me, it's more of a depressive episode kind of situation where I isolate. Mm. Mm -hmm. But some people, you can tell or you get a sense that they want somebody, they need somebody. Mm. Like, and you try to chisel away and then it's like, man, this statue ain't breaking at all. Are there any hacks or any sage words to say to break through to those people who might be a little bit more difficult, who you can tell want to do the work, but just don't know their ass up from their elbow? <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a saying that is. <laughs> I don't know where I got it from, but I've used that saying for many years. Yeah, no, I love it. The reality is that there aren't any easy solutions. There aren't hacks. All there is, is can we just stay present with people? It does drive me a little bit nuts when I hear people say, yeah, I have this friend who we were really good at friends and then he stopped calling. And then I was like, well, he's not calling me, so I'm not going to call him. Stay present with each other. But the reality is, is that if we're not doing our work, if I'm not in my own work, dealing with my own challenges and continuing to develop my capacity for presence and for being with another person then they're not likely to see me as somebody who they can reach to. And so the more I do that, and then I stay present with my friends, and even if I say, hey, are you doing okay? And I can tell that they want to say no, but they say, yeah, I'm fine. Okay, you know, look, I'm not quite feeling it, but okay, cool. Just let me know if you want to talk and just always be in there. I think that that goes a long way. And I think people step into it when they're ready to step into it. There's, but can't, we can't control others. We can't do it for them, but we can, we can be present. And this is the thing. What do we say about our groups? And when I say we, I'm talking about my friend, Jordan Ferretti, who I'm in this work with. 
what we want to do is we, we want to support guys so that every man has five men that they can count on. I love right? that. And so you imagine what that feels like. Think about the five guys in your life that you can pick up the phone and you can count on. And anyone listening to this, I would say, ask yourself the question, do you have five men you can count on? Like really count on. Not just to pick you up at the airport, but to collapse into in grief. Yes. Or to to be there with you when you really have no idea what to do next. To just be there with you, to not try to fix you. Right. To actually just be with you. So become that guy. People you can be your whole full ass self in front of. Yes. I think that's super, super important. I don't know if this is a leading question or not. But I'm going to ask you because you're a straight guy. How much does homophobia play into uh, the inability of so many men to foster bonds that they clearly, clearly want to have with other men? A huge amount. It's massive. And it's funny. I'll use this as an opportunity to kind of pitch my own podcast. I have a podcast, The Bind. In, in my most recent episode, I talked with a friend, Jim Struvy, who is the executive director of a program of an organization called Men Healing, which is a national organization that works with male survivors of sexual violence, right? Not perpetrators, but survivors, right? And it turns out that there's almost as many male survivors as there are female survivors of sexual violence. He himself is a survivor, and he tells the story on the podcast about the fact that he is a gay man, but that he wrestled with his own sexuality, right? His own internalized homophobia in relationship to the fact that his perpetrator was also male, right? So the victimization that he endured was not related to his sexuality, right? But it was, it was pulled in. And this sort of a thing is the deep fear. One of the deepest fears that straight men have is that I will be seen as gay, which is also, it's very adjacent, I think, to I will be seen as a woman. Mm-hmm. Those two things get conflated and at the same time, they're pathologized, right? And so this is one of the ways in which young boys that become men are turned into unhealthy men. It's one of the ways in which we are turned into men within this box in the ways that the man code is enforced. To be seen as gay, it's the last thing I want to be seen as. Right. And... It's absolutely astounding. I had navigated this myself, right? I, I actually, I remember all kinds of incidents where I was made sure it was very clear that I wasn't a gay man. And I'm not proud of that. It seemed like my survival was at stake in to be seen as a straight man. Right. So it's absolutely massive. And the thing is, is that all these things that we deem as not masculine, we deem them either female or gay. Or gay. Right. Right. Yeah. I could do 10 podcasts. I might have already about the conflation of male homosexuality and femininity yeah. uh, when the two are certainly not always mutually inclusive. No. They often can be very mutually exclusive. And to, to pathologize these incredibly human things, like this is one of the ways I would say that men are oppressed by these systems is those things that are are very normal human things are used to make it so 
straight men. Well, and I won't even say straight men because I actually think this still permeates within gay gay culture. I've had some conversations with some friends about this and even witnessed it in some ways. The ways in which we use this pathologizing of homosexuality to completely limit the kinds of expression men can have. The example I always give, it's a very simple one though, is the way we dress, right? So you walk down the street and you say, oh, like all these guys are dressed differently. Are they really? We have kind of a uniform and the men that, that break out of that uniform are usually gay men, right? They've developed enough of, a, of an identity to be like, fuck it. I don't care. I'm going right. to be who I am. And that's super threatening, which is, I think, one of the reasons that when gay men are victimized and attacked, it's usually by straight men, right? And because it's threatening, it's like, oh, that's somebody who's actually in some ways telling me I could do that. I could be that. I don't have to be gay to dress like they, that. They exhibit a level of security in themselves that I think the perpetrators are yeah. very envious of. Yeah, yeah. I talked a, a little bit, kind of, which episode of my podcast it was, oh, it was with a friend, Efrain Gutierrez. Um, we were talking about how actually, and this is something I, I, I picked up from Alok. Mm-mm. God, I can't remember their last name. Alok is a, a non-binary trans person who, I'll send you a link. They're absolutely fantastic. Okay. But one of the things that I heard them say on a podcast, I think it was on the Man Enough podcast, was that actually that the forefront of men's work should be trans men because that's actually where the most honest conversation about gender is happening. And if you want to have a sense of what kinds of freedom and liberation are possible for men, look to trans men as those who are basically saying like, look, this is who I am. This is what's possible, right? as a cis man, I don't have to be trans to have that kind of liberation, but I do have to begin to acknowledge the fact that masculinity is, it's been conditioned into me. And as I've been told what it is, isn't necessarily all that's possible. It's a wide world and you can do what you want to do with it. I'm even still learning that myself. Mm. It's a work in progress. Mm Uh, so to close, I, I want to ask, and I, this is a question I haven't asked a guest in a really long time, mm. but Greg Flynn, what is your self-care? You do work that can mm. be emotionally tiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, as someone who gives of, of themselves a lot, what do you do to nurture yourself? What do you do to mm. make sure you're good? <laughs> Thank you for asking this question because it's reminding me I'm not the best at it. I've still got plenty of that old masculine hustle in me. For sure. I have some routines that I do, morning meditations and some movement, evening stretches. In the last year, I've gotten really into this idea that's called the science of stretching, which is long hold stretches, five-minute stretches that have been game-changing. My sleep hygiene is very important to me. I'm in bed pretty early and I turn off screens and maybe we'll do a little bit of reading and maybe a little bit more meditation. But then the big one is every couple of months I get away just by myself and I'll go out here to Whidbey Island, which is just outside of Seattle or somewhere else in the area and just take a couple of days to unplug, be with nature, 
walk in the trees, walk by the water. Yeah. Those are all good, good things. Thank you, Greg, for taking the time to do this podcast with me and have just a great conversation. We've had a couple so far, and I hope that they continue. Uh, you can find Greg online at gregoryb.flynn.com. That is his website. Uh, you can also find him on Instagram at men.connecting. That is men.connecting. And uh, there is also the Seattle Men's Circle Instagram, which is Seattle Men's Circle. Uh, and Greg has a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> which I will I will include in the show notes. It is called The Bind, B-I-N-D, and you can find it at thebind.buzzsprout.com. And I also just want to give a shout out to Greg for being a cool person and not having the cult leader guru mentality that a lot of people in the men's work and coaching arena have. Uh, Greg really seems like he's down there getting his hands dirty and asking not only everyone else the difficult questions, but asking himself the difficult questions and doing the work. Anyway, uh, far be it for me to judge others, but uh, it sounds like Greg's doing it right. I appreciate what you're doing, man. Uh, keep it up. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Uh, you can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings, uh, follow me on social media, like I said, uh, follow our Patreon, or subscribe to my Patreon, actually, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, you get access to exclusive episodes, you get episodes a little earlier than the general public, you get a cool-ass sticker, lots of stuff, once again, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music, and, uh, doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace <laughs>